Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Memoir Book Club. The podcast where us, two best friends, sitting on a couch, floating in the sea, tell you about the celebrity memoir that we read last week. And I have a question, Ashley. Of course. Are you like just straight reading it or do you think you're adding some really hot, high level thoughts? I'm adding high level thoughts, low level thoughts, the thoughts from the mushiest parts of my brain. I'm squeezing my brain until they seep out into a mic for you to hear. Mm, Brain. (laughs) And Claire. Yes. What would you suggest someone do if they did not want to slurp my brain much? Well, much like if you go to a restaurant and you don't want the brain on the menu, you order something else. Feel free to listen to a different podcast or read the books yourself or just get out of our way. (laughs) We're on a brain roll. But if you like us, as always, please leave us a five-star review. Ashley will read all of the names of our five-star reviewers at the end of the episode. And of course, we've got Nikki's Unisex every Thursday in Williamsburg, 7 p.m., where we do a fresh lineup of comedians every week. And what else do we have on the Barbie? (laughs) We got a brain skewer. (laughs) We have got finally tickets to one, the digital event of your lifetime happening April 27th. It is happening at 8 p.m. Australian time. That is A-E-D-T. Okay, that is going to be 6 a.m. New York time, 3 a.m. L.A. time. And it's like midnight in Singapore I don't know we're trying (laughs) work backwards from Melbourne this has been truly one of the worst experiences of our lives trying to figure out all these different time zones but Australia we are coming for you please 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 buy tickets and secondly if you want to see us IRL we are coming to Chicago May 14th at the Lincoln Lodge we are doing two shows I am so excited about it if you play your cards right you might meet my mother play your cards right you're gonna want to play your cards right so we have so many things coming up we will post them all on our instagram we will make it as easy as possible for you guys to follow along we cannot wait to meet you in chicago we cannot wait to chat with you on the virtual show the virtual show is so fun because you guys can like message us and we read them out loud it's a real hangout dial in from work dial in from your bed grab all your friends and drink some wine and watch us rip apart some poor innocent soul who just tried to open up. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I love you guys so much. Oh, and of course, if you missed it, last Thursday we had Teffy of Hello Teffy fame on the Patreon. We had one of the most fun, chaotic conversations where we just like rambled about everything under the sun. If you've ever just wanted to hear us ramble and and you've thought, oh, I'd love to hear them ramble while the sun beats down upon me. <laughs> You can. And I have one last thing I want to plug because we haven't plugged in in a while, but people love it. The wormhole on Facebook. I love it. I pop my little head in there to see everybody get along and it makes me so happy. It's such a cute community. Someone just started like an Austin thread for people who want to meet up in Austin. I love that. And I will say whenever people post like, oh, this is off topic, but I was wondering if anyone had advice for this. Like that's what it's for. It's for the wormies to meet, to get advice, to chat, to discuss any topic also under the sun and the moon and the stars. Yes. And Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir about your week last week, what would you title the chapter? Clean and clear and under control. Okay. What was that a commercial for? Eyeballs? I think Neutrogena. (laughs) I meant contacts. I don't even have anything. I've been sober all March and I'm breaking it this weekend and I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, at the wedding. For somebody who doesn't even like drinking, it was shocking to find out how often I'm in drinking scenarios. Every day, it turns out. Yeah. I mean, we are in bars almost every day of the week. Professionally. Where Uh I am often paid in drinks. And so it's hard to turn down 
your payment plans. Well, that's why last summer when I was not drinking on Sunday through Thursday, I would just like go to a show and be like, well, I guess today I earn no sips. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything to say. It's been really nice. I feel very healthy. I'm waking up perkier. I definitely don't like drinking that much. Not that I'm not like not going to drink ever because I do like having like a glass of wine or a drink on a celebratory night. But I think more than anything, it was good practice in saying no to people because the social pressure to drink is so high. It's like crazy the way that if you don't drink, you have to have an excuse like you're a Mormon or a alcoholic. Like the idea that I just like don't want to poison myself and feel shitty in the morning is not good enough for people. That's true. So I guess nothing happened to me, but that's what I have to say. I didn't know if you guys knew I was doing that. And so I wanted to bring you in right at the end. Ashley. Yeah, Claire. If you were a celebrity and last week was a memoir, what would you title it yourself? I would title it, Be Nice to You. Me? To me. (laughs) Yourself. (laughs) Ashley, be nice to you. Okay. Because I, you guys know I've struggled with some body image stuff. I will say the book we read this week had some very interesting chapters about body Mm -hmm. and self-hatred. And I think that while I've gotten to a fairly decent place, I still can be a little bit punishing in terms of exercise. And I think that especially with Little Bug, my exercise time has gone down quite a bit, even though I'm walking a lot more. I just don't like literally go to the gym that often. So I feel like when I do, I'm like, all right, I have 30 minutes today to work out. I need to like bust my fucking ass. And it's like, for what? Why do I need to be mean to myself all the time? This isn't that helpful. I'm walking like 20,000 steps a day. I can just chill. And so today I had 30 minutes to work out. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm not going to bust my ass. I'm going to do a yoga video and really breathe into myself and feel all my bones crickle and crack. Boy, do they crack. You're looking at one of the noisiest skeletons in the game. (laughs) And when I do yoga videos, I always put my phone in the other room and make the video full screen so I can't see any notifications or anything. And so then I just had like a 30 minute turned off. Bug was napping. My body was crickling. And it was a very nice time, and I really need to do that more often. I feel like sometimes I'm like, oh, 30-minute window, do something. Mm-hmm. And then and then I watched TikToks for 20 minutes. And then, like, 10-minute window, do something. And now I was like, no, just, like, breathe. You could just breathe. That's nice. I always forget about that. I always forget about air, and that's why I'm dizzy. Anyway. Should we get into this week's book? Okay. I know that we're feeling good, but we should stop. Because it's annoying, according to this week's memoirist, Josh Peck, who wrote a book called Happy People Are Annoying. Baby, just ask me. Joshua Peck. He was born November 10th, 1986. So he's 35 now. And this book literally just came out two weeks ago. So he wrote it whenever the normal time frame would be for writing a book and then having it come out last week. When he was 34 and a half to 35, approx. So I will say right off the jump, Claire and I have never been YouTube watchers. People have asked us to cover some YouTuber books and I just kind of assumed we never would because we just aren't familiar with that world and it does feel like we're just talking about something we've never even heard of before. We did get bamboozled with this one. This is accidentally a YouTuber's book. I disagree. I don't think Josh Peck is first and foremost a YouTuber. I picked this up as a child star book. So I think to some, he is first and foremost a YouTuber and a Vine star. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you're out there 
and you watched a lot of YouTube and Vine. Was he on YouTube and Vine as like a Christy Carlson Romano, like using the nostalgia or was he like a legitimate YouTuber? Because that's how it reads in this book is that he like has had multiple careers as a child star, as a YouTuber and now as an adult actor. We didn't do a YouTuber's book. I think we did. I think we got bamboozed. Anyway, so Josh Peck. Happy people are annoying. Let's just start here with the intro. You are an amalgamation of trauma. I hate to break it to you. There's a good chance that someone in the past five generations of your ancestral tree lived in an incredibly unfair existence. So unfair, in fact, that their sole purpose was survival and the thought of living a good life didn't go much further than making sure they had enough to eat that day. So because Josh Peck finds happy people annoying, he went out of his way to make me unhappy. I don't know what it is, but this book annoyed the shit out of me. And I think I've put my finger on why we'll get to it as we read. But like... That line is annoying. That's an annoying way to start a book. Me and Ashley were definitely at odds about this book. I did not read this book and think, oh, I'll recommend it to somebody. I definitely didn't find it likable. It actually made me think that like anybody who tries to be funny should stop. I will say that it's been a while since a book sent me into like a tailspin. And this one absolutely did. I was so frustrated by it. And it took me a really long time to put my finger on why. And I think a lot of it is the language. I saw the language as... I guess this is patronizing as like endearing in the way that he failed to succeed. But I was like, <laughs> but I really was like, oh, but it's not for lack of trying. I'm like, I feel like he kind of came. He tried to give his best. He went as deep as he could and he was as funny as he could be. And he can't go deep and he can't be funny. So like, what am I going to penalize him for a lack of talent? But I'm like, yes. it wasn't a lack of trying. Ashley says yes. Anyway, so he ends this intro with. We didn't elect to be born, pick our parents, our circumstances, or our environment. People we've never met, people we've never even thought about, all had a hand in the hand we were dealt. And it's our job, as far as I can tell, to correct the bad behavior of everyone who came before us. I mean, what's there not to be happy about? Can I read you the note that I wrote in my book after I read that? This reads like the intro of a shitty Sundance coming-of-age movie that old people think is good. I mean, he has what I think we call like AA disease. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there is like not alcoholism. The other one. <laughs> it's like when you develop your voice through like show and tell. So it's equal parts honest and then equal parts just listing out the things you've done. And then also like you get your laugh in there. That is different than say a Tiffany Haddish book who has like an incredible comedic voice that and is able to legitimately make you laugh out loud while talking about her pain. Yeah, I will say most of the jokes in this book made me do a double take and say, oh, that was a joke. That was the funny part. Good one, Joshua. I could tell where he was trying to be funny. And I guess I gave him the like extended olive branch of being like, this is a Band-Aid. He's trying his best. But I guess I in the same way that you got mad at me last week for thinking that we were like getting the exact book we signed up for and you really wanted more. That's like kind of how I felt this week is that I think like the irreverence is like a band-aid for feigned vulnerability. Yeah. I think overall there's almost nothing in this book. I think that he like gives us the headlines of traumatic incidents and like doesn't dive into it any deeper than the notes he's supposed to give. But none of it feels like he learned anything. None of it feels like good advice. Like it does make me wonder why a 35-year-old would write this book and I think it's because he thinks he's like helping other people who've been in similar situations but there's like nothing helpful in it okay so let's start on Jeff on Jeff Peck (laughs) do you think I'll ever say somebody's night (laughs) right the names I managed to fuck up can I tell you on the walk over here I literally thought to myself well Josh Peck there's no way I could fuck that up it's so straightforward it's two syllables 
Jeff Peck. <laughs> I honestly was giving you the benefit of the doubt because this is such an insane thing to mess up that I was like, oh, his dad must have been named Jeff. <laughs> But we don't even know his dad's name. I don't think he knows his dad's name. He doesn't know his dad's name. So let's give you some background. He was concepted. <laughs> uh-huh. He gets like really into the like night of conception of his mom and his dad. His dad was a married 62-year-old businessman who had three grown children and told his mom, who was a 42-year-old woman of <laughs> some kind, that he was separated. They had sex one time. She got pregnant. I mean, I will say I also would have been shocked if a 42-year-old got pregnant by a 62-year-old. I would have assumed I know. I thought that we have biology. The biological clock is a myth invented by (laughs) our mothers to get grandchildren sooner. (laughs) So they get pregnant. The mom decides to keep it. The dad wants nothing to do with the baby. He lied about being separated. He's fully married. He has a family. And as Josh says, majority rules. When you already have three grown kids and a wife, why would you give up that whole life for just some random woman? And an unborn baby. Yeah, I do think that he does have a really good line about this. He said, a surprise is a birthday party. A mistake is a DUI. They're two very different things. And yet somehow me being born can be categorized as both. He became his mom's whole world. Yeah. I think that it's the best thing that ever happened to her. His dad, this is something that could have blown up everything that he's ever cared about. And so he decided to make Josh something he did not care about. (laughs) Yeah. So he says, my mom is an enigma, a once in a generation type of person, a tigress, an empath, a counterculture Jewish priestess who has been sticking her middle finger up to societal norms since she was a kid. Simply put, she gives very few fucks. And until I was born, made a habit of breaking convention in how she worked, lived and loved. So this is a very nice way of saying it sounds like she could not hold a job and she was the type of person to have sex with a married man and get pregnant. He is very kind about her. I think if you read between the lines, they often were leaving their apartment. They were often going back to Florida to move back in with the grandparents. She changes careers like six times in this book. She was not a stable woman, I would say. It seemed like she was a bit of a mess and he views her as like a real beacon. And you can really see throughout the book how her problems nested in his brain. When Josh is born, the dad wants something to do with him. The mom has to take the father to court and there he basically opts to do a lump sum child support payment as opposed to being the kid's life forever. Josh never meets his father in real life. Yeah. And he also estimates that that lump sum probably was like five years with the child support and kind of feels like his mom got a real raw end of the deal, but was like, I don't know, the alternative would have been potentially chasing him forever to get those payments. So it felt smarter to just get that money up front. That money, like most money in our life, lasted until it didn't. And with the final dollar went the last connection we had to him. When I was five, my mom sent him a letter and a picture of me that I'm never sure arrived because who wouldn't reach out to an estranged lover after catching a glimpse of such a fetching five-year-old? So that was his upbringing. It was kind of rocky, very inconsistent. And then he ends it with this, which I think gets to the heart of why Ashley is so bugged by him. And when I read this chunk I also rolled my eyes but I think it didn't bother me the way it bothered Ashley it's because he loves his mom he really gives her a lot of credit she is the only person who showed up for him here's what I know she showed up a ship is safe in the harbor but that ain't what ships are made for so I'm less interested in how you flex your yacht and more interested in how you fare in the rough seas because calm seas never made a skilled sailor where the fuck am I getting all these maritime references from and sure my mom might have paddled out in bad weather but she never let us sink she battened down the hatches and when it stormed and raised the sails and when the wind blew She's the captain of our ship and she's always got us home. 
Okay, so he overall reminds me of almost every man that I've ever been, like, viscerally angry at. Like, every man that I've known in real life who I've been like, just shut the fuck up. And I think a lot of the qualities that they all have in common is that they think that they're owed something by the universe. It's, like, a very white man problem. They haven't necessarily gone to therapy or, like, let the therapy work, but they do acknowledge that they're fucked up and think that that counts to just acknowledge it. And they read a lot of self-help books and look to other people for help. And again, they don't apply those things. But the fact that they know them, they think counts for something. I'm also like a big metaphor person. And I will say reading this book made me like look at myself and think, hmm, maybe I should stop doing that. (laughs) But it, it is. It's like. I think what this book doesn't even know or what Josh Peck as a writer doesn't realize is it's actually much more difficult to write plain and simple and straightforward. It is so much harder to cut to the truth of the matter and it's so much easier to be pithy. And And it really pithed me off. (laughs) But I don't think he even knows that. I don't think he realizes what he's doing is somewhat of an emotional shortcut. Yes. I don't know. I don't have a problem with like the general thesis of a a lot of what he says and I do think – that he has an interesting story. I do just think it's the way he wrote it that I'm like, wow, if I was ever in a room with you, I would walk the other way. Like, I don't want to be around him. Yeah. Just be earnest. Just be real. I was saying, I feel like the Bellas, which by the way, if you guys haven't listened to the Bellas episode because you didn't know who they were, a lot of people were like, I wasn't going to listen. And then I did. They gave us everything we've ever wanted from a memoir. They did a really good job of just being honest and straightforward and like walking us through their lives. I highly recommend it. Yeah. And this book, I just don't feel like gives us much. I think that he really feels bad for himself a lot and thinks he's really interesting. And then overall thinks that with this book, he really did something. Now I want to trigger warn for the rest of the book, as I'm sure anybody who's ever watched Drake and Josh knows, Josh was very heavy as a kid. And that was very much his persona as an actor. He was the fat kid punchline, for lack of a better term. But as we'll get to, like, that was something that you were allowed to be publicly. Like, adults would be like, you're fat. I mean, I just looked up his IMDb, and at one point, he played a character called Fat Kid. So, like, that is what a lot of this book is about, is his struggle with the size he was. And so, going forward, we're going to quote him, but it's very fatphobic. It is a little bit triggering at times, I think, the way he talks about weight and then the way he puts a lot of importance on it and then there are parts where he writes very actively that he has tried to distance himself from the person he was then so I feel like it's the center of his world and then he distances himself from it so enormously that it is like a very weird thing to read his next chapter is too fat for commercials and when he was a kid he was 297 pounds yes so before he even talks about getting into acting and how he decided it and how he wanted it, he talks about having an agent and how his weight played into it. Because I think that in terms of his childhood, being fat far eclipsed the fact that he was famous. Well, he was famous because he was fat. I mean, being fat was first. He says, I don't want it to sound like I'm speaking in hyperbole here or making fun of myself. My one memory of childhood is being fat. I want to make sure you understand the magnitude. So he's like, when I look at my childhood, the number one thing is that I was fat. Like his whole experience was feeling self-conscious, binging, being told that he was too big by other people. That's like all anybody ever said to him. And I think he was, first of all, an extremely lonely kid. He moved around a lot. It seems like he went home and all he ever did was watch TV. It was just him and his mom. And then like when it wasn't just him and his mom, he was being told that he needed to lose weight. 
Yeah, and food played a big role in his life and him and his mom's relationship. They even had a binging ritual together a couple times a year. She had a very unhealthy relationship with food, he said. The two reasons that I ate was one, I like the way delicious things made me feel, full stop. He really used it for self-medication. He says he had an addiction to food and he talks about being like, I wasn't like other kids who loved gummy bears. I was go to your house and when your parents were asleep, raid their kitchen. Like I couldn't stop myself. And then he says the second was... That my mom has always had a warped relationship with food, literally getting on or off a diet my entire life. From ages five to eight, I watched her weight constantly fluctuate. She always had a scale, except for the few times a year she went off her diet and when the wheels really came off. I was never on a diet growing up, not for more than 24 hours anyway, but still I had to hide my really damaging eating from my mom. And then he says, but like every once in a while, there were these rare times when she really wanted to do some damage and didn't care who knew it. Then we would partner up. There wasn't a pizza joint, Chinese restaurant, or deli in New York that was safe. We'd hit the local drugstore on the way home and buy three or four bags each of whatever cookie or candy combo screamed our name, retreat to our room so we could eat in peace. It didn't seem odd. It seemed fun. I could finally eat how I wanted to. And he talks about how being overweight then, it was just very okay for people to say something to you. It was okay for people to like tell you you looked unhealthy, that you looked bad, that your kid needed to be on a diet. And people constantly said that type of thing to him. But he says... The beautiful byproduct of my appearance, the silver lining to it all, was that I had developed a finely tuned sense of humor, like a consolation prize. The world said, you're going to be massively overweight, so here, be funny. And I know that that's like a very common trope, and it shouldn't have annoyed me so much, but in the context of this book where he constantly feels owed something, it bothered me. (laughs) No, I mean, I do understand like the difference between like a consolation prize, the world said, you're going to be massively overweight, so here, be funny, versus the next paragraph, he goes... If I could make you laugh, then perhaps you wouldn't make fun of me. In fact, if I could make you laugh, perhaps I can control the entire conversation or even the entire energy of the room. I do see how you're like, he has this real idea of fate exists around him and things are happening to him as opposed to being like cause and effect. I was overweight. So I developed a sense of humor to protect myself. Right. But he's saying I was given these things. I was given you're a fat kid as a negative. And then I was given you're a funny kid as a positive. There's nothing that like he does. Like both of those concepts are thrust upon him. I guess I feel like the difference between us is I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, I understand what you're saying. The the trauma made me funny trope. Whereas- so I actually went back to find this and highlight it because in this section, it didn't really bother me, but paired with other times throughout the book where he talks about things happening just to him because he was owed them or like the universe intervened and did this to him. It all piles on to be like, all right, what do you control, dude? <laughs> yeah, it's very much, I mean, just his attempt to be funny, which is bad, like deflecting emotions. So then he talks about his experience being funny and he like remembers the first time he ever told a joke. He was at a Jewish holiday dinner. He quoted a joke his mom had told and everybody laughed. He's like, and that changed everything for me. He also says, throughout my life, television has been my best friend, my babysitter, and my teacher. Most importantly, my escape. I was obsessed with television and much like food, when I like something, I overdo it. In this case, though, my obsession was an asset. So he becomes obsessed with watching TV, repeating the quotes and everything. That's probably how I found myself at eight, scanning the pages of Backstage magazine, looking for a job like I just graduated from state school with a communications degree. He saw that there was someone looking. Sid Gold of Gold Star Entertainment is searching for young comedians to represent... All ages are welcome. So he begs his mom to take him to meet Sid Gold. He crushes. Sid Gold is like, you're signed, baby doll. Let me walk you to showbiz alley. (laughs) And so then Sid Gold gets him five minutes at Caroline's on a kid's show. He kills, he says. He says, I killed. I absolutely crushed. 
they say the devil gives you the first ride for free. And this was that. I was possessed. So he's eight years old and he started doing comedy at every comedy club in New York. No more kids shows. These were adult rooms and they'd have to sneak me in through the back door so the club wouldn't lose its liquor's license. I would go to school, come home, get a nap in and then perform till 11. Everywhere and anywhere that would have me. So he is like an eight-year-old stand-up running around town throwing his bits around. A year or two went by and I was slowly becoming more successful. I had upgraded agents. I was starting to book commercials and my identity at school with my family and friends became more and more enmeshed with being actor kid. I did a few sketches on Conan. I did stand-up on the Rosie O'Donnell show. I was sort of hitting this stride and the more I performed, the better I got. And then he auditions for performing arts high school. He like finally meets other kids. He's no longer feels like the outsider who has to have like actor kid as his identity to be like, why am I not playing with other kids? It's because I'm an actor. And he's like, Oh, maybe I could pursue this as an actual job. And he says this dovetails with a final time when him and his mom had had to pack everything up and move to Florida. And he was like, I decided I didn't want to be poor anymore. I wanted to make things better for me and my mom. So I just started trying to make a career. Yeah. And he says, once I'd given my little 12 year old self permission to be an actor without apology, things got good fast. Over the next year, I threw myself into every comedy show acting class and open call that would have me sitting in waiting rooms for three hours to get a chance to audition. I soaked up everything school had to offer, taking drama, dance and vocal classes. This was my renaissance, my rookie season. And in that rookie season, he gets a movie. Yeah. He's in snow day. Ever heard of it? So he lands Snow Day, and this was a Nickelodeon-produced movie. And at one point, the president of Nickelodeon was just walking around set, and he walks up to the president of Nickelodeon and is like, hey, you should put me on a show. Not just a show, all that. Yeah. He was obsessed with all that. He had been auditioning for a year. They wanted nothing to do with him, but he had made this guy. His name is Albie. He impresses Albie and gets a call shortly after that he's been hired for The Amanda Show. He says, Albie was my golden ticket and could bestow it upon anyone he pleased. Throughout life, you mostly meet other people on boats, but sometimes you meet the water. Albie was the water, and when he rose, so did I. Another boating reference. Jesus, call me Commodore Peck over here. But so my mom and I packed up our 87 Mercedes and set off to the coast. We were leaving a lot behind. Everyone we knew, our apartment, the school I loved, our identity as New Yorkers, but it didn't matter. This was the next step. The nomadic Pecks were back at it again. Never could stay anywhere too long. Something he never really says is that she pushed him in any direction. She did, however, push him to go talk with that guy, Albie. But yeah. I am like, I wonder how much she was like, this is it. This is how we're going to pay the bills from now on. Me too. So then this next part, this is an example of what I was talking about where he's like trying to be funny and sarcastic. But then when you pair it with other lines from this exact chapter, you're like, all right, are you kidding though? Because he says... This was my time. I'd waited long enough. I'd done my time as a regular kid, but it was time to elevate, to level up, to start living the life of a successful actor. Hope you like Lexus's mom because we're going to be able to lease one. Like he's obviously kidding there. But then on the next page, he's talking about how like the producers didn't really know what to do with him. And he says, I knew I could perfectly recreate bits from TV shows. I knew I could do five minutes of stand up. But this was the thing I'd been working for, the thing I dreamed of doing my entire life. And now I just had to do it. Like, it is this thing of like, are you kidding? He's not. I guess I just still don't really see what your problem with that is. My problem is that he's like annoying. Yeah. I mean, I do think like when you're 14 or whatever. and He's I, not 14. He's 35. Yeah, but he's talking about how he felt at the time, which was like, I mean, he had from the ages of eight till the ages of like 12 or 13 I mean, I do feel like we've come down on this in every other book that's ever said anything similar of people being like, finally, it was my turn. And it's like a 22 year old. He's literally 13 being like, 
finally, after three years of hard work through my tweens, it was my time to shine. Like every other time anyone's ever said it. So I don't think that's that's what he's saying. I guess that's where we disagree. I think he was saying he was so nervous and he wasn't getting any airtime and he had to just be like, all right, like this is what you've been working towards. Just try and do it. I don't think he was saying it like finally my due had come. I think he was saying like, okay, get out there and show them your chops. Anyway, on the Amanda show, there was another actor called Drake Bell. And he says, on the court, we were magic. I guess they just really meshed. They did bits together super well. The writers started writing them together all the time. And then a evil villain we know as Dan Schneider. In this book, he's a hero. But in the real world, uh, I'm pretty sure he's a criminal. He was told by Nickelodeon, you should write a buddy comedy. And he was like, I don't know any buddies. (laughs) And then one of the writers pointed to Josh and Drake. That sounds weird when you say it like that. And then he was like, oh, my God, that's such a good idea. And he wrote Drake and Josh for them. It got greenlit. They made it for five years. So the show Drake and Josh gets about four pages in this whole book. He says, I know some of you reading this book might be interested in the doldrums of what happened on set, the stories, the drama, which there wasn't much of, what it was like to have a hit show on television at 16. But for me, it didn't have much of an impact. I mean, we were a hit show, sure. But kids' TV shows weren't the star-making factories they are today. It was kind of just a job. I do think that he was very nervous and would just like go home and hang out with his mom after. I also think that because he's so reluctant to acknowledge the, I mean, he hates the fat version of himself and the fat version of himself was the star of this show. So I don't think he like embraces it like a fun nostalgia trip. I think he sees it as a different and bad version of him. Yeah. And I guess I also think that his truth was he felt so isolated because of his weight and he felt so ashamed. And now he's been thrust into this scenario where literally the joke of that show is that he's the not hot one. Yeah. He has a hot brother and he's the ugly goofball. And like, I do think he had gone from a life in New York where he would go to school, come home, watch TV with his mom to a show in LA where he was paying rent, but he was still coming home and watching TV with his mom. I believe him when he says nothing much happened. And then he makes a quick point to say that he and Drake never stayed friends. So when Drake had legal troubles, he was like, oh, man, that sucks. And of course, Drake wasn't invited to his wedding. I will say you and I have gone back and forth on this. I do think it's a little odd how disconnected they are. And I guess you're right. Like if Drake just like was a coworker who he never really spoke to outside of doing scenes together, that makes sense. Like maybe they just were never friends. I guess I really do think that he was so insecure as a kid. And I'm sure Drake's experience of being the hottest 16-year-old on Nickelodeon was very different. different. Like, I bet he was going to parties and banging chicks or, like, at least had a girlfriend. And I do think Josh just had his mom. Yeah, I think that this paragraph about Drake is just, like, very cold. And I know now we know that Drake is a sex offender. This book was written after we knew that, too. Similarly, when Drake got into legal trouble, people ran to get my opinion. They thought that I must have a take on this person I had spent so much time with when in reality, it had been years since we'd talked and even longer since we'd seen each other, which is why alongside everyone else who doesn't know Drake, I was upset by the inexplicable events that unfolded in his life. So right after this, we're going to get into the fact that Josh himself had a pretty significant drug problem. He also, maybe it's a sex offender thing. He doesn't seem to have a problem with a lot of other sex offenders in this book. (laughs) So if that is it, it's like, oh, you you picked – I'm not – I think none of them deserve your sympathy. But it, like, is this thing where this paragraph feels, like, inordinately cold. I guess I just disagree. I feel like it would have been 
very tacky and equally like crass to if they're not friends and they haven't spoken in years he's having a drug problem and you're going to the public and making a comment like I don't think it's his place to make a comment if they don't know each other or speak to each other I guess if somebody I knew in high school had a DUI I wouldn't take to Facebook to be like well here are my thoughts he didn't elect him as a friend they were co-workers I don't know what yeah I feel like it's fucked up that people feel owed an explanation of somebody else's drug and alcohol problem from a stranger. Maybe it's because I like watched a lot of that show. I like find it very hard to believe that they were never close. Josh is not a good actor. (laughs) I guess I find it so believable that he did what he had to do to get through the day and be easygoing and be like the funny kid that got cast and paid rent for his mom, but was secretly so bitter and angry that he like, he hated himself so much. Yeah. Yeah. Like no friends, no girlfriend. So then he gets into the money about the show, which I find very interesting. I love cold, hard numbers. Yes. I hate to talk about money, but I just want to give you an accurate picture of where I was financially when the show ended. So the show ran for five years, right? Yeah. Four seasons over the course, course of five years. And two movies. Drake and I started the show making 10K per episode and finished the show making 20K. So let's say the median per episode was 15K. I have to say, who are their agents? That yeah. is bad deal making. Times that by 60 episodes, you've got 900K. Not bad, except remove 20% for agent and manager fees, another 30% for Uncle Sam, and you've got 450K. Still not bad, but spread that over five years, which is how long it took us to shoot all 60 episodes, and it breaks down to a little less than 100K a year. I'm not complaining. I'm just trying to give you an idea of where I was when the show ended. I needed to work, and quickly, because most of the money had gone to supporting my mom and me. Oh, and kids' television doesn't pay residuals. That caught me way off guard, because those shows get replayed like fucking how could that be possible that feels so illegal and that is like a pretty hard-hitting sentence but then he gets so woe is me about it it's when he has to like compare himself to other things and be like my life is harder than this other thing where I'm always like I don't know that it is (laughs) you don't know those other people you don't know those other things like if you had told me how hard up for cash Josh Peck was a couple years ago I wouldn't have believed you because I don't know him I don't know his financial situation I would have been like he was on a tv show so he must be so the fact that he compares himself to these other child stars I'm like how could you know well I do think he knows I mean we also read Stephanie Tanner's book and she was set for life because of full house but he says I wasn't set for life it wasn't like being the kid from modern family or stranger things it was a niche cable kids show without a golden parachute I agree but I disagree because I guess I do (laughs) think with the modern family kids it is different and I do think he needs to dissuade people of the assumption that he is a rich child star again I think the previous paragraph where he just laid out the money and said he doesn't get residuals did that so to carry on and be like my life isn't as easy as these other kids those other kids are being like preyed on by Drake like I don't think their lives are easy either (laughs) okay so then we get into his post child star drug era if you didn't think there'd be one you'd be damned (laughs) you wouldn't be damned just wrong you don't have to go to hell for not knowing that Josh Peck had a drug drug problem (laughs) that means going to hell yeah I thought you'd be like well I'll be damned yeah that's hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) anyway So his drug era. Yeah, I didn't know about it. And then I was like, did I miss something? And then it turns out nobody knew about it. It Nobody knew about it. He kept it secret. And it's partially because it's like the Stephanie Tanner thing again, where it's like he was just luckily just irrelevant enough. And nothing bad ever happened to him. There's no true rock bottom here. He did do a couple things that could have very easily become a rock bottom if he'd gotten caught. But he didn't. True. (laughs) So the way he got into drugs was... 
a girl a girl he hasn't gotten into it yet but the last two years of drake and josh he decides to lose a ton of weight and loses 120 pounds so he gets down to like 170 pounds yeah and he starts kind of feeling himself. He lives in that apartment complex. That the I think Oakwoods. That's where he's talking about, right? Yeah. And if you guys are new to the pod, for some reason... Ashley lived there. Tell them what the Oakwoods is. Okay, so the Oakwoods is this giant complex of apartments and they are these like furnished apartments for the most part that have short-term leases. So a lot of people live there when they're like either moving out to LA to like live there for a little bit before they get a regular apartment. They live there if they're remodeling their home. They live there if they're recently divorced. A lot of recently divorced dads move in there for a little bit while they're getting their life back together. And then it's a big pilot season place where people will move out there for the months of pilot season. A lot of child stars post up there while they're trying to make it. And that way their parents don't have to like fully relocate to L.A. You can do it as like a temporary test. And then also I lived there when I was an intern and a lot of like college internship programs use the Oakwoods as like dorms. So that's where he had... God, the blackouts I've had in the Oakwoods. Ashley, we don't have time. One time he talks okay, about the hot tub. Anyway. I just want to do it. I have a scar on my leg because there's a hot tub in the Oakwoods. And one time me and my roommate and these two guys climbed the fence because it was like 3 a.m. and the hot tubs were closed and locked up. And we like jumped over this fence to get in the hot tub. And I like cut my leg and then the hot tub was like off. So we like got in the hot tub and then it was cold. They, they turned the hot tub off. So then the water was just going back down to regular water. <laughs> I don't know that this is the story. It was a tough, it was a tough night. <laughs> anyway, so he was living there and I think a bunch of like party kids came down and he went to a party with them. The he- kids rove the Oakwoods in packs. <laughs> yeah, I almost hit all of them with my car so many times. There's just packs of like 17 year olds, like 15 to 18 year olds just roaming the Oakwoods <laughs> in packs. <laughs> so he gets into drugs via them. He does cocaine to try to impress this girl one time. And he says this about doing drugs. Someone once asked me what it felt like to be addicted to drugs. And this is how I would describe it. Imagine you've spent your entire life trying to listen to a radio station, but every time you tune in, there was static. You were certain you were on the right frequency, but the signal was never very strong. And then one day you accidentally bump the knob and suddenly all the auditory goodness you've ever been waiting to hear your entire life fills your ears in surround sound. You have been on the wrong wavelength, but not anymore. That's what drugs felt like for me. I wasn't tuning out. I was tuning in. When the feeling is so comfortable that you can't think of why you'd ever want to feel another way, you, my friend, are screwed. Drugs lifted the pain of existence so well that I mistook being high for being alive. He goes, a quick caveat. If you're looking for a drug memoir, this ain't it. Go buy Anthony Kiedis's book, Scar Tissue, if you really want a beat-by-beat thrill ride through the garden of mind-altering substances. Asterisks. You could listen to a Celebrity Memoir Book Club's episode of Scar Tissue. Where we read the book so that you don't have to. So he gets really into drugs. He quickly ditches that first group of people who introduced him to the partying scene. And he like starts hanging out with just full-on drug addicts. That's their thing. So around this time, his dad dies. He gets the call from his mom. And he never met his dad. But he decides that despite my curiosity, I didn't want him to enjoy the spoils. I didn't want him to be proud of a kid that he had nothing to do with. By the time... He was successful. He was like, I don't want to meet my dad and have him be like, well, you turned out okay. Like, he didn't want to give him that pass of being like, wow, you really ditched out and gave me fucking nothing and things worked out. And like, you don't get to look at that and be like, see, who needs dads? I thought that this was a really honest and good section. I I liked the way he talked about it because I agree that that is a really hard thing to reconcile to be like, I want to meet him and I want those answers. But like, what would the experience be and would it be worth it and then his dad dies I guess and that kind of settles 
that. His curiosity, of course, doesn't stop there. And he finds out a friend of a friend had met his biological half-sister. His friend's friend adds the girl on Facebook, who's, of course, now, like, probably in her 40s or 50s. Yeah. And he, he has this interesting moment of... He, like, stalks her Facebook to see photos of his dad. There were pictures of my dad as a young man, pictures of him at bar mitzvahs and birthday parties, playing catch with his kids and at holiday dinners. There were pictures of him and my siblings with captions that read, we love you, dad, miss you every day. There were tributes on her Facebook wall about what a good man he was and what an impact he had on their lives. From what I could tell, this man was loved and revered by his children. He was all the things I wish he could have been for me, for them. It was then that I began to get the closure I didn't know I needed to truly say goodbye to my dad. I can't believe I had to mourn a man that I never knew without all the requisite deli trays that accompany a good Jewish funeral. Looking at my sister's Facebook page showed me that this wasn't some serial adulterer with a bunch of bastard kids around that I know of. This was a flawed man who made a mistake. A scared guy who, given the choice, decided to do what he thought was right for his family. So we both agree that that's probably not true. Oh, my God. He need this. Josh Peck, if you're listening, you need to listen to the other episodes. Because if there's one thing I know about children or especially a daughter, it's they're gonna eulogize the shit out of their dad, <laughs> no matter how awful of a man he was. They're going to look back and forgive him for almost anything. anything. And I'm sorry. I am obsessed with this idea. They're like, oh, this poor, perfect dad who had one single tryst and of course one rogue come cost him everything <laughs> ain't that the way these poor men they're out there living perfect upstanding lives 90 years one mistake and that mistake becomes a baby who writes a book about it Bummer. that's not that's not what happens it's never been just one time nobody gets pregnant off of the first fucking time the one and only so then we have another quick chapter about his time working on The Whackness, which is a movie that was like a big Sundance hit where he kind of realizes he's an angry guy. He also talks about how he this was in the height of his drug addiction, but he kept it together for the movie. So something that's really important about Josh Peck is that like The Whackness was the highlight of his life. He's obsessed with making The Whackness. The Whackness is about like a New York City drug dealer who goes to therapy to give up drugs. It's like a white kid who loves hip hop. I guess that is Josh Peck to a T. And it's like the one movie he was in that's like critically acclaimed. It did great at Sundance. He was opposite Sir Ben Kingsley. I feel like the whackness, and this is me being subjective here, was a fluke. <laughs> but it was like the highlight fluke of Josh Peck's life that like told him to keep going. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I kind of feel like he accidentally got into Harvard and Harvard couldn't unaccept him. And now for the rest of his life, he's like, am I brilliant? He accidentally was really good in this really well-received movie. Where he played himself. And he acknowledges several times that he was essentially just playing himself. But now he has this idea that like the greatness does lie within him to be an excellent actor. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. I don't think that that's true. This chapter ends with this conversation he has with his mom where she goes, you're angry. Me. What? Mom, you're angry. Me. I'm not angry. I was angry. She was right, which made me even more angry. I don't know what she saw that triggered her to say this. Maybe it was that I was 17 and 300 pounds. Maybe it was because I spent my summers driving cross country with my mom instead of going to parties and being a teenager. Maybe it was because I took it out on her. I don't know. What I do know is that I had been angry for a really long time. I felt entitled to it because of the rough hand life had dealt me. My anger was a warm blanket that kept the world at bay. And over time, it had become almost imperceptible. The dirty little secret is that it's not about the outbursts, the bar fights, the fits of rage. Anger is about the quiet, seething judgment of everyone and everything. You become the self-appointed arbiter of all that is right and wrong in the world. And if people would only act the way you thought they should, life would be infinitely better. Okay, so this is one of the things that I think is actually going to be really controversial okay. to you. <laughs> like I said, this horrible hand life has dealt him. I think that he acknowledges his trauma as like 
horrible cards life has dealt to him. But I don't think he acknowledges any of his luck as like luck. Do you know what I mean? I think that he's like, okay, I had this horrible situation of being overweight and having no dad. And I was given a TV show because I deserved it. Like at this point, he is the 17 year old star of a TV show. And he's like, I'd been dealt the absolute shit. I just like really didn't read it that way. I feel like later when he talks about his YouTube experience, he like makes a big point of constantly being like, I got really lucky. I was there at the right time, blah, blah, blah. I think you with can YouTube. He says that not with Disney. I guess I don't think it was like that lucky that he got it. He was auditioning every single day and going to a performing arts school. I guess I know a lot of people who tried to be child stars and like didn't. We know so many people who want to succeed in show business and haven't. It's hard. No, I know it's hard, <laughs> but I feel like I do think on the one hand, doing it as a kid, especially 20, 30 years ago, is different. Yeah. And I will say the second thing is, I guess I really do think I can hold in my head that somebody can be professionally successful and still at 17 specifically very angry and mad that their dad left. Like I can see, I can say that somebody can be both. <laughs> so I think that he has statements like that. He talks about that in terms of being like a funny eight-year-old. He says this again at 17. Later, he has a line about meeting his wife and how she was like an apology from the universe for being so shitty to him mm-hmm. at 24. And it's just like, I don't know. Those are like a lot of segments in his life where he like looks back and is like, I've been dealt the worst and the universe owed me something good. I think that when you combine those three times, it does seem like he thinks that he's had a really bad go of it. I guess I think that that's fine. If he wants to look back and say being abandoned by my dad and being like overweight and made fun of, I felt very lonely and being like financially insecure. They were often homeless. Like I do think you could say I had a bad go of it and I turned it around for myself at 12 years old. He said, I'm going to take control of the situation and make money for me and my mom. And it worked out. And then at 17 years old and then at 24 years old. I guess I just I I, yeah. I don't hate it. I do. I think he's annoying. Do I think he's not that funny? But I, I think you're allowed at 17 to be mad your dad ditched you. I think you can. Be, I agree about the dad. Um, you thing. can make millions of dollars and still be like hurt that you were abandoned by a parent. I, I agree. It doesn't make me that mad, I guess. I guess I think that in terms of the showbiz stuff, there was a part that when we were talking earlier, you said you really resonated with his frustration in show business. And so this is a part where I'm like, I don't resonate at all with his lack of acknowledging where he succeeded and where he hasn't. I guess I do think he acknowledges he's like when he has that Drake and Josh, he's like, I was so lucky. It was so great. I had everything I wanted except for I hated my body. I would have rather been skinny and had nothing or like he says, like less than 100 people in the world have gotten to have a TV show with their name on it. I guess I feel like after a thousand memoirs, that's constantly the truth. You can have everything and still be sad. Yeah. So I think my argument in defense of this is I do think that's like fundamentally what this book is about. And if you go back to the first chapter the last sentence of the first chapter. Did I dare to try to do it all? Do what I love and like the way I looked? Isn't that privilege reserved for happy people? I had to decide, stick with what works or go for the life I wanted. Should I try for happy? I mean, I do think that that's like what this book is about is feeling like so much of his success came from this internal self-hatred. So part of you is like on the one hand, I want to like myself, but I'm scared if the thing I have to do to like myself will make it so that nobody else likes me. Like, I, I don't know. I guess I like. Okay. Anyway, so now he's talking about his struggle with his body and how much he disliked being overweight. The chapter is some not nice things about myself. I'm going to say some not nice things about myself here. Some things that I was feeling at the time in my life when I was in tremendous amounts of pain. I want to reiterate that this is how I felt. It is not commentary on anyone but me. I hope when you read this that it doesn't take away from body positivity or from anyone who feels utterly content in their own skin. And I really related to a handful of the things he says in this chapter. Obviously not to the extent that he experienced them, but... 
this part where he talks about every thought that I had until I was 17 years old was preempted with once I lose weight, I'll. I was in a self-imposed quarantine and I didn't feel comfortable doing anything more than hanging out with a select group of people looking like this. I think that a lot of people have that in a lot of different situations in their life where they just put everything on hold until this one thing has been achieved. And it is sometimes, I mean, it's always in your head and not always something that can be fixed. I think some people like live their entire life in a holding pattern waiting for a like once I do blank aisle. And then he says, when I look back, I think, what a conflicting existence. I was walking this fine line between getting everything I ever wanted, but at the same time broadsided by all the ways I was inadequate, not enough. I was living the dream and then being woken up from the dream by the public perception of what's an acceptable appearance. In the early aughts, the standard of beauty was, to put it bluntly, not being a healthy weight, but underweight. Not to mention at the time, it was open season to talk about people's weight, especially if you were funny because people thought, ah, he's hilarious. He can take it. There was a joke on the show once where I received a shirt as a gift, and upon opening the shirt, it was revealed that it was the size of a circus tent, to which I replied, is this for me or an SUV? It's a funny joke. I love a funny joke. It just still hurt. I think we've recognized this before. In TV shows or movies, when they make fun of a physical characteristic, that's the actor that you're making fun of. Like, I can't imagine having roles written where, like, they're making fun of me. Like, I do think he addresses head on some of your critiques where he goes, some of you are probably thinking with good reason, oh, was it hard to be loved? Was it hard to enjoy the spoils of being a recognizable person with everything that came along with it? To be honest, as I sit here writing this, I wonder the validity of this whole section myself. What the fuck, reader? I thought we were friends. Look, what I think is this. Obviously, it was nice to have people enjoy the show. Performing for no audience is a clear sign of madness. So yes, a large group of willing participants happy to be fed ads as they enjoy their 22 minutes of entertainment is integral. Also, I suppose someone in my position who's desperately looking for validation might have gravitated towards a field that supplies it in massive doses by more than just your peers and also the general public. He basically says he saw it as he was doing like the grunt work of being the straight man, the punching bag joke, and it was worth it for him. And then he talks about his weight loss and losing weight in front of so many people. I think that that is also really hard. I think people have a really hard time with any change in something that they feel comfortable with. And on that show, they were comfortable with Josh is the fat brother and Drake is the hot brother. So watching that shift, like people freaked out about it. Another thing that I am sure is really hard is that his weight loss is going to be a topic of conversation for the rest of his life. I think he wishes it was something that he could just be like, okay, I was a fat kid. Then I lost weight and now I'm a thin adult. Mm -hmm. Being a former fat kid is his whole fucking thing forever. Yeah. And I doubt he'll ever have a role that eclipses that one. Josh is judged on his body in a way that normally is reserved for women. And so there isn't even like a guide out there for how to handle this kind of criticism and obsession with your body. Yes. And that I really feel for. For those reasons, I've never really wanted to talk about my weight loss except to make fun of it. I look back at old pictures of me, old episodes of the show, and I think, who is that guy? It took me a really long time to make peace with him. I hated that guy for a really long time. Why couldn't he just control himself? Why do you have to embarrass us like that and destroy our body? It took me a really long time to love that kid, to realize that without him, there would be no me. I appreciate that kid. I don't judge him anymore. I don't know. And then he talks about, he says that he was riding high on the promise of a new life. But as soon as I was done, as soon as I had arrived, I started hearing whispers again. Those old familiar feelings started creeping back. I needed something to take care of it. Something new, something better. And now we're back in drugs. Yeah. So I do think he had this idea of, oh, when I'm skinny, I'll be happy. He got skinny. Believe it or not, the core of himself was still under there the whole time. Bummer. So he says, for four years, I did not take a sober breath, except the time between waking up and locating whatever mind-altering substance was closest. He talks about blowing this opportunity with Judd Apatow. He was cast in a movie. I wish we knew which one. But he got fired from the movie because he was showing up late and high. He very firmly believes 
that he would have been famous had he not fucked up that role. I mean, I do think he probably could have. He talks about how like Judd Apatow because he fucked up a Judd Apatow movie and Judd sent him an email specifically set up people like Jonah Hill, Seth Rogen, guys that aren't commonly seen as leading men. And he was given that opportunity and did squander it. But then he gets the whackness and he is obsessed with Ben Kingsley and he doesn't want to fuck it up. So he goes and he's sober for the six weeks of shooting. And then the movie's a hit. It goes to Sundance. Everybody's cheering. And he has this moment at Sundance where he has this like panic attack. And he's like, I got to get out of here. He does an interview for Rolling Stone right before he leaves. And during that interview, when he's sitting down with the Rolling Stone writer, they find out Heath Ledger just died. And he says watching everybody's response to like a drug induced death had like a profound effect on him. And I think also he realized it was one of those things like, okay, I lost the weight and I'm not happy. I want to be a successful and acclaimed actor. Here I am at Sundance where the toast of the town and I, I'm still not happy. And I do think it was this real thing of like, okay, I have to finally acknowledge that the problem is me and it's not like a lack of accolades or a weight thing. I have been on a quest my entire life to find contentment through the outside world. And now at my professional apex, I was as miserable as ever. I know, I know. And so then he says after Sundance, he was at this crossroads where getting sober There are these moments where the curtain becomes a little bit sheer and you can kind of like peek through it or not. And you have to catch yourself in those moments. And that does really resonate, I think. Yeah, he's like, if somebody ever calls you and says, I think I want to get sober, like don't let them take a nap and sleep off that feeling. You have to find them when they're ready. You have to pounce. He goes back to L.A. and spends three weeks trying to drink the problem away and then has another moment of clarity and goes to an AA meeting. And he says he doesn't think of himself as an alcoholic still. Which is crazy because then he reveals that his mom has been sober for the majority of her adulthood. Yeah. And he had been going to AA meetings with his mom because she just didn't have a babysitter. So he would just sit in the back and play games. I mean, he's very familiar with the world of AA. February 15th, 2008, he goes to his first AA meeting. He goes, he still doesn't think of himself as an alcoholic. And then the speaker speaks and he's like, oh, and he says like his whole life he had been reading self-help books and psychology books. And I mean, you to- can read them in this book. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he's, he says, the truth is I've walked around my entire life feeling terminally unique, that God or evolution or whatever you believe in glitched when I was being cooked. I'd read self-help books and studied psychology, doing my best to find some diagnosis for the way I felt. Depression, sure, I had some of that. Anxiety, you better believe it. All or nothing thinking, obsessive thoughts, throw those in too. What do I win, Bob? A one-way trip to the mental hospital, Josh. However, none of those, th- see, I mean... <sighs> Okay, funny, funny, whatever. It's not funny. However, none of those things encapsulated me, and it would be a disservice to those truly suffering to label myself as that. But the way these people talked, oh, yeah, that was me. I was being diagnosed, and for the first time ever, I wasn't alone. There was a word for people like me, and it was alcoholic. Fuck. A guy comes up to him at the end of the first meeting and is like, you new kid? And he's like, yeah, will you be my sponsor? And the guy was like, come back tonight, and then we'll talk. He says a lot of AA is like taking direction, I think. And I think that has to do with like the powerlessness aspect of it. Because he was like, go to another AA meeting. I just went to my first one this afternoon. But he's like, I really think he was like, if you're serious about this, this is such a low bar to ask somebody to show up to another place tonight. That if you're willing to do that, I know you're like actually here to put in work. Yeah. So he goes to the second meeting. He and the guy go sit at a Italian restaurant. This is what I mean by like the cinematic way he views his life. We sat in the back booth of an Italian restaurant in a strip mall. It's the kind of place where you go when you're not welcome in other establishments. I don't know, man. LA is a lot of strip malls and there's a lot of restaurants in the strip malls. <laughs> I don't think Josh Peck has ever not been allowed somewhere. The first bit of getting sober is an absolute dream for him. Everything clears up. He starts to understand who he is. 
what he's doing. He says, I was riding the pink cloud of sobriety. For the first time in years, my body didn't have any intoxicants in it. So obviously I felt better. But more than that, I felt hopeful. Obviously, that doesn't last forever. I mean, it's the same as losing weight. Like, you're still the person you are. It's so funny here, too, because just compared to your feeling about him is because he's like so much of AA is taking all the responsibility. It wasn't that people didn't have legitimate gripes. It was that they were irrelevant. If we're not the problem, then there could be no solutions. We couldn't control the outside world, the wife, the employer, the judge who took issue with us. We could only control our perspectives on how we could choose to react. And the best response more times than not was no reaction at all. Not that I'm saying you're wrong, but it's No, I know. I'm thinking about him saying that because I think that he thinks the best response is to not react is very interesting. Also, I think it's funny that he's like, the number one thing I've learned that's changed my life is to take all the responsibility. And you're like, so much of what bugs me about him is that he seems to think everything just happens to him and he's just a victim of fate. Yeah. I mean, that's how this reads. (laughs) Then we get to a movie he made in his first year of sobriety called Red Dawn. And it's just another example of like, okay, you lose all the weight. That doesn't necessarily make your life perfect. You get sober. You've still got a lot of issues to work through. He says getting sober is like being reborn and you are the age of your sobriety. So when he was shooting this, he was one years old. So he says basically what happened is he's booked to be Chris Hemsworth's brother. And Which, why would they book him to be Chris Hemsworth's that brother? That does good. They set him up to fail. And so he does everything he can. He gets as jacked as he humanly can. Or they wanted him to be comedic relief, but he thought he was being cast as an action star. That is probably what happened. <laughs> it was like a twins situation where he was Danny DeVito. Yeah. And he tried to get as hot as he could. And they were like, oh, no. The synopsis of what happened is he's like, I got there and my ultimate insecurities were like all triggered. And he acted insane I overacted everything I underacted everything he's like I was fucking up every scene he's like I knew I was doing a really bad job but I couldn't get a grip on myself because I was just so insecure the whole time I guess my question with that is why wasn't he being directed because he does say he's like why didn't anyone take me aside and say stop acting like this taking his side on this one when you're shooting a movie there is a director for a reason and I'm wondering why they didn't direct him (laughs) long story short the movie comes out nobody really gives a fuck Part of the joke is that MGM goes bankrupt. So the movie doesn't even come out for three full years. And then it comes out. No one cares. And he's like, oh, I mean, there was like a couple bad reviews, but he's like, I really thought that this would like ruin me. And it turns out no one gave a shit. And it just is there. So let's pick up where we left off. It's 2013. I'm 26. Red Dawn finally comes out November 2012, three years after we finished filming. And the world didn't end when people saw my performance. He says, between the ages of 23 and 26, I would act in three films. A thriller called ATM, where I'm stuck in an ATM. He also made a cold weather western that shot in minus 40 degree weather in Romania, which I think was that movie from Schitt's Creek. Yeah. And a 3D dance movie starring Chris Brown. Rotten Tomato score eight. Interesting. So he is like aligned with many a predator. He says he was clearing like 40K a year. So I was making a living as an actor on the salary of a waiter. He was not a successful actor. And it is 100% his fault because I could see how a lot of people are like, nobody could see me as anything else. He was given the Judd Apatow movie. He was given the action movie. He was the winner at Sundance. It was fully his drug problem. Something interesting is that he says, like, I never ended up on the front page of TMZ. It almost was worse that nobody knew why he had fallen off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because then it just looks like he'd fallen off. Like, at least if he had been publicly known as somebody who's performance was impaired by their drug use when he got sober there it could be like this society-wide second chancing he could have been the person we were rooting for but unfortunately people just assumed he sucked anyway so just in sheer boredom because he wasn't working he downloaded the app vine and he and his 
girlfriend used to just watch vines and then she was like why don't you make a vine he makes a vine because vine had been bought by twitter and he had like fifteen thousand twitter followers which is not a lot i have to say he gives this whole like background algorithm based explanation for why he got on the essentially the for you page of vine and i was like i don't know dude you were the only famous person on vine like it was you and seventh graders i do think people saw you and went oh shit is that josh but he's like the way it works it's like all the algorithm and whatever so he ends up on the popular page at a certain point he's always on the popular page he gets like a hundred thousand followers in a day per day he's growing 100k per day at one point he is the most followed person on vine very briefly, I think. But, I mean, that's still a big thing. And then he starts making money from it. Influencer marketing was not a thing at the time. But all of a sudden, every now and then, a brand would be like, what if we paid this guy who has a fuck ton of followers on Vine a couple thousand dollars to talk about our product? And then at a certain point, he's like a brand consultant. He's meeting with major brands and telling them how they should use Vine. That's what really threw me off because he's like and then I was at Wendy's explaining to their social media team how to create a vine and I was like I mean do you know outside of being Josh Peck imagine going to a conference and being like the best thing you can be on vine is already famous yeah so for the first time in his life he's making a ton of money and he doesn't know what to do his agents don't know what to do social media is so new that he's like I don't know maybe it'll help me in the long run if I have more followers and his agents are like, I guess if you want to keep doing it. But he's like, look, for the first time in my life, I'm making steady money. So I'm going to keep at it. He keeps at it. He is getting a lot of money. So he's making a ton of money, but he still first and foremost thinks of himself as an actor. And that's really important. That's like really crucial to who he is. Things are not going great, but at least he's not broke. And then finally, he gets that fateful call. He was in the biggest sitcom of the 21st century, Grandfathered. For those of you who don't remember, I think it was about John Stamos was his dad. And then he has a kid and it's I don't know. Three kids. I don't know. I honestly, I could not have told you that the show existed. I like for some reason, like really distinctly remember coming out. Anyway, it was canceled the very first season. And so he was like, well, at least for the first time in my life, it doesn't matter that my show got canceled because I have Vine. And then the next week, Vine got canceled. <laughs> So Vine goes away. He had 9 million followers down the drain and he is just lost in what to do. He cannot think of what's next. And then he remembers YouTube. Finally, someone's like, get on YouTube. And this is the thing to him that I related to where he goes, I have to pivot again. I just pivoted. I'm fresh off pivot. Adapt or die, I suppose. It was the obvious next step if I wanted to keep this train moving. And I did. The incentive was more than there. And the only child in me just wanted to keep having people to make jokes with. I like I do get that sense of just being like Jesus Christ it never fucking that ends. I get that I really understood I mean there's just always something new mm-hmm. and also feeling like you've built something in one arena that no longer counts for anything and just being like yeah. when does it stop becoming like sand through the fingers yeah my fingers are dry they need lotion not sand <laughs> so then he decides to pivot to YouTube To create longer form videos. And he's like, I knew that this would be a completely different thing. Like, could I be funny for more than six seconds? Making vines is one thing, but making YouTube videos is a whole nother thing. So he puts a ton of thought into it. He just starts filming a ton of stuff. And then he eventually decides to make a vlog leading up to his wedding. 
And the wedding vlog does numbers as his first video. But then no one else cares about anything. He's just doing these lifestyle vlogs that every single video gets less and less views. No one really cares. I think he does one a week for a year. Yeah. And at the end of the year, he doesn't have much to show for himself. And he's like, what the fuck do I do? And then finally, somebody is like, hey, buddy. Why don't you put yourself in the YouTube? Which led me to the question, what the fuck had he been filming? I think it was like him doing things. I don't think it was him talking to the camera. He was holding the camera, but we don't want his POV. We want him chatting. We want his Christy Carlson Romano in the kitchen telling us about the good old days. Yeah. So he starts doing these videos where he eats chicken wings. I just realized I have no idea where he was on 9-11. Oh my God. He was in New York. Why wouldn't he tell us? Because Christy told us, right? I think so. Anyway, so his channel became, quote unquote, an idiot's guide to fulfillment. I had a famous realtor give me a tour of a million dollar Bel-Air mansion. I ate everything The Rock does on his cheat day. The idea was always, you weren't going to do these things, but I could do them for you. Between 2017 and 2019, my channel grew exponentially, as did all my other social media as byproducts. And eventually he's making a ton of money on YouTube. But then, of course, the problem is he's still thinks of himself as an actor. And this is the other thing I related to that he felt very frustrated with the fact that he was seen as a YouTuber first and foremost. And he was like, the whole point of YouTube was to make money so that I could be an actor. He went three years, not booked in a single thing. After grandfathered, he didn't get a goddamn thing. And I relate to that. Like as somebody who spent now seven, eight years working on stand-up comedy to then like do this podcast and then do the TikTok for the podcast. And like the thing we're are- known for is TikTokers. I mean, it does suck. And I understand. I relate to him. That is how could the thing I love so much and put so much of myself into not be working but this other thing does it does suck and I guess I get it yes I think that I was just like shittily being like well being on a Nickelodeon show is like you to be acting like he's doing the same job it's just moved platforms that kind of thing he was doing before is what YouTube is now essentially so like that like campiness that loudness that bigness yeah I guess as somebody who has never been paid a single dollar in my life to do stand-up I'm like well if if you have like I'm not out of the hole I probably have negative made money Right. And that's why you and I argued about how his thing was different is because he was an actor who like is now a YouTuber who wants to be an actor again. We've never been professional stand up. You're saying we're so much less successful than him. Yeah. That's why he annoys me. Anyway, he also was teaming up with other YouTubers. He says it was around this time I met one of the biggest creators on the platform, David Dobrik. So later he says it out, David Dobrik. This was also a time when people I watched People I had worked with, people like David, facing controversy and succumbing to the pressure that came with having to push the envelope with every new video. Ah, that's David Dobrik's problem is that he had to push the envelope with every new video. And the inevitable disasters that ensued. What would keep people's attention? That is a crazy way to describe getting underage girls drunk and fucked or whatever. Drunk and assaulted. To say that he was succumbing to the pressure that came with having to push the envelope with every new video. Poor David. I'm sorry. You know who my favorite accounts on TikTok are? This woman who like renders tallow. And then I love those videos where they like steam clean a teddy bear. You know my favorite. (laughs) I've never been like assault a woman for my entertainment. And so part of him wants to quit YouTube and like put it all into acting. But he's like scared of losing everything. And he says... I'd become greedy because I had security. I'd been okay for a while now. Not Rolls Royce mega mansion security, but more than enough to take care of me and my family. When my wife would say something like, if you're frustrated with where you're at as an actor, why don't you back off the social stuff? You're good. We're good. Maybe take a break and focus on what's important to you. I would reply, not if you like that Tesla you're driving. I'm kidding. I didn't say that because I like being married, but I would say I can't let off the gas. We don't know how long this will last. If I take a break now, there's no telling if I'll be able to recapture this. And then he gets into... Another problem with acting is that he wasn't good at it. So he 
realizes that he hadn't taken an acting class since he was a kid trying to land roles. And so he had at one point thought about it and asked Vincent D'Onofrio, who his acting teacher was, and then just never really thought about it again. And then at like 24, 25 was like, wait a second, should I go to acting class? And so he starts going. He gets so frustrated because the acting teacher is mean to him. But he talks about his inability to act. He says, I had done good work before, so I coasted off that, and I could usually get it together during the audition process. It was a scene or two that I had drilled for weeks, but when I actually got the job, I just had trouble seeing it all the way through. I was like an NFL player who crushed the combine but fell apart on game day. I guess that's similar. I don't know. I think that that just means you're like a bad NFL player. Like if you're an actor who can crush the audition but not act, you're a bad actor. (laughs) If I ever wanted to be great, more specifically, just work again, I'd have to humble myself. I'd have to truly look at my flaws and face the idea that maybe my best wasn't enough. So he's in this acting class. The lady's mean to him, but he finds out that he actually does have it within him, the whackness acting that he thought was there all along. He said she was tough and direct. She just wouldn't allow bad work. Mm -hmm. He really ends up admiring her way of teaching. And after a while, he finally like wins her over. And here's what I know now. I know I'm not as gifted as some actors out there that when God was handing out fistfuls of talent, he might have spent more time on Tom Hardy and in the looks department as well. Damn it. He's gorgeous. But I know this too. I now know how to do the work, how to prepare, how to honor what the writer wants and what the story requires. I've had a taste of what the great teachers taught. I've done scenes from the great plays, from the great writers. I have a framework and foundation from which good work can be born. I'm in shape and ready to do my job to the best of my ability. I wasn't a fake. I wasn't an imposter anymore. Good for him. And How I Met Your Father, I found him very fine. (laughs) So now we get philosophical again. You're the fish you're trying to catch. So basically, he does all of these acting classes, and then he hits that three-year period where he doesn't get a single job. And he's like, for the first time in my life, I'm trying as hard as I fucking can. I think I finally like got better at stuff, and nothing's been going worse. And then he's in an AA meeting. And a woman says, let me ask you this. What are you willing to let go of that stands between you and happiness? The obvious stuff is easy. The anger you've been holding on to, that resentment. But what about the things that you think are assets? That relationship you think you can't live without? That job that defines you? Can you let go of that? Because if you're really serious about getting happy, you might be forced to let it all go. To know that you can be okay without it. Because you're the fish you're trying to catch. You are the love of your life. You're everything you've ever been searching for. So let me tell you, that's where I was at the fall of 2019. So he's making a shit ton of money. Seven figures a year. From YouTube. From social media. He's crushing it. And he finally just says, you know what? I quit. (laughs) The thing that's making me not value this and not be grateful for like my wife, my kid and my money is that I want to be an actor and it's not working out for me. And he's like, maybe if I just like let go this idea of myself as an actor, I can enjoy it. And so he lets it go. And he's like, it's also better because people are always saying like, what have you been in? What have you been in? And to finally be like, it's not that I'm not getting things is that you're right. I don't want to. I'm out of it. No one fired me. I quit. And then, of course, what happens, so he, like, slowly starts going on auditions again and just doesn't tell anybody, and he, like, does it for himself and the love of the game, and he finally gets booked on something. A couple things. Since he let go of the need to be booked, he got booked. Yeah. And I, I think that that's nice. This and was the other line. He said, I was married to the love of my life, the perfect person for me. Meeting Paige felt like a cosmic penance for the first 24 years of my life. It was as if the universe said... He's a good kid and all he has is his mom. Throw him a family already. It's time. I like I do 100% hear what you're saying in the writing. It feels very like she's a human being too. She's not like a prize. She's not. It's very objectifying to be like. Like he doesn't get into how they met, what he loves about her. No, 100%. Reading this, especially after the recent Dave Grohl, because I didn't dislike this book as much as you, but I was struck by how they met, when they met. 
it's so unimportant. And like when I think about my life, when I met like my boyfriend, that was not that it changed the course of my life, but it was like a profound shift. I feel like these wives, they're always like an afterthought. I was like doing all this stuff with my career, also planning a wedding. But anyway, and it's like, wait, what wedding girl? Who? <laughs> it's like a gym they belong to. I like I really can't understand. And I, get, I think part of it is that it's so not how I was raised. There's that thing where they're like, oh, men look for a woman that fits into their life. Like you just have to fit into their life. Like my mom does not fit into my dad's life. Like my yeah. dad's whole life is me and my mom. And like finally after 30 years, he was allowed to get a dog. But even that was like only because she said fine. And like my boyfriend is very much someone that I don't fit into his life. If anything, he's home playing video games waiting for me. So it's like hard for me to think that that's a common thing. But I do think in this book, in the Dave Grohl book, and I'm like, oh my God, these wives are just a piece of the puzzle. They're like a side dish to the yeah, they're like, meal of who you are. Got the wife, check that off. Got the other thing. Check that off. We need a new car. Honey. I, yeah. I mean, I feel, like, I feel like, I don't know. I'm just so kind of baffled by how little the women come up. He also makes a big deal about what a good dad he is. He was afraid he would have trouble bonding with his kid, but being a dad came easy peas to him. And he says he's happy. That he loves Yeah, He connected to him right away. So he's like, how do we wrap up this book? And he goes, I guess it would behoove us to speak about happiness one last time. What I think of it now, and as opposed to when we started, here's what I know. Happiness is the name of a state of being associated with a number of fleeting feelings that are pleasurable, temporary, and brief. Happy is like the weather, blah, blah. I mean, it is like, he thinks it's overrated. I don't know. I don't think happiness is overrated. He says, just know that I almost gave up a thousand times. Just know that despite how good my life is, when faced with adversity, my mind still romanticizes getting a bunch of drugs and some White Castle hamburgers and seeing what happens. Just know that I still don't really feel comfortable at parties. Just know that you can do whatever I did, but better. And that when you do, I'll expect you to write a book for the next run of people just like us. I don't know why he wrote this book. I mean, I will say, I think he wrote this book to try to get his career back on track, to like legitimize his YouTube, to like make money. I do think he's trying to be like the dad to everyone that he didn't have. Yeah. I will say at one point he talks about someone gave him the advice, like if you want to get back into acting, it needs to be your singular focus. And I think that this book was him like lining up the target. Yeah. I mean, I do think that this book was more, I mean, it was more than Chris Shell. Like I do think he wrote it. Yeah, me too. I do think it came from a place of ego being like, I can write a book. I don't know that he was ready to write a book. I don't think he was. But I do think he was delving as deep as he could get. I mean, it didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't, I found it annoying, but I guess I, I guess I it didn't, didn't get me the way it got you. It got me. I think I've, because he reminded, I saw so many people that I know and hate in him and I would have to restrain myself from, I think, like punching him in his little nozzle. See, that was intense. I did find like none of his jokes funny and I did feel find his need to be funny like eye rolly. So that's what I was going to say is I found the book not as much of a problem as like him. I'm like his vibes are bad to me and I, I don't like him. See, I think I felt like a lot of like he just wants to be liked and I, I unfortunately on my end he failed. No, on your time. end he failed. But I guess to me he took more responsibility and tried harder than a lot of people. So I didn't he didn't bug me. But we agreed. Listen. I don't think it'll ever come up in real life. And no, that I care about you way more than I feel neutral about him. <laughs> okay. Well, wrapping it up, you guys, don't forget to get your tickets for the live show April 27th. Don't forget to get your tickets in the Chicago area, May 14th. All the links will be on our Instagrams and in the show notes. Sign up for the Patreon. We are doing our advice column this week. And... I know Josh Peck thinks happy people are annoying, but do you know who makes me happy? Is it the five-star reviewers? It is. Thank you so much to EKAF04. I appreciate you, AF. 
Thank you, Kimmy. Heart, heart, smiley face. I heart, heart, smiley face. You. Thank you, Mask Kara. You have the most beautiful eyelashes I've ever seen. Thank you, Trashly S'mores. There is nothing trash about s'mores. Thank you, M. Lynn 2006. Throwback to an incredible year for music. Thank you, A. E-I-H-A-B. I appreciate you and your rock hard abs. Thank you, the Maya Cherry. You are sweet like summertime. Thank you, heart, heart, nails. You have a beautiful heart and perfect nails. Thank you, EBS Nicole. I don't think you deserve Cole for Christmas. You deserve all the gifts in the world. Thank you, Fope Prancis. Your church is the only one I'm attending. Thank you, Morally Corrupt Faye Resnick. I cannot wait to dive into your side of the story. Thank you, 26 Ashley Yah. Yah, Ashley's. Let's all unionize. Thank you, Rexico. I'm happy that you're the last dinosaur who's not extinct. Thank you, Lindsay430. I am so impressed by your ability to wait an extra 10 minutes to start smoking. Thank you, NYC Worm. Baby, I love you so much. NYC Worms are the best. Thank you, A-L-L-I. I cannot wait to crack that code. Thanks, R to the Izzo for shizzle, my nizzle. That was a reference. Please don't hate me for saying it. <laughs> Thank you, Outraged Rat. Get some pizza and stop being an outraged rat and be a pizza rat. And that is all for this week. I love you guys so much and I'll see you next week.